Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with Inside Track co-host... Eb Wilkinson. And special co-host... Captain Bob Wells. <laughs> here all, all of us here today, uh, welcoming you to a special foreign affairs edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in. Wow, we have a great show for you again today. Our first guest is the longtime foreign affairs and diplomatic correspondent with CBS and NBC News, Marvin Kalb. He'll be joining us in just a moment to talk about his great new book, Assignment Russia, Becoming a Foreign Correspondent in the Crucible of the Cold War, published by Brookings. After the break, we'll greet Oregon Republican leader, refugee for males, Red China, and frequent contributor, Sol- Solomon Yu, to also talk Sino-U.S. affairs. We're going to skip our normal activities uh, in, in our opening segment to allow us more time with our special guest today, so let's get right to it. Marvin Kalb spent 30 years as an award-winning reporter for CBS News and NBC News. Kalb was the last newsman recruited by Edward R. Murrow to join CBS News, becoming part of the later generation of the Murrow Boys. His work at CBS landed uh, him on Richard Nixon's enemies list. We'll get to that a little later. At NBC, he served as chief diplomatic correspondent and host of Meet the Press. Marvin Kalb, welcome to Inside Track. Bruce, a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Joining us here today are my co-host, Eb Wilkinson. Uh, He's a a retired Marine aviator and retired U.S. Navy captain and former uh, assistant national security advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, Robert Wells. Um, I have read and enjoyed your new book, Assignment Russia. I'm going to say that about six or seven times because that's how we get people to remember. At least (laughs) (laughs) millions of TV viewers like me and my two co-hosts joining me today watched or listened to your great news dispatches and paid very close attention to you for years. As you outlined in your new great book, Assignment Russia, in your new book, you describe how you prepared extraordinarily hard for a job as a news correspondent, especially if you were in Moscow, but it almost never happened. Tell our listeners how a crank call from some whack, as you called him recently, <laughs> said he was Ed Murrow. What? What? How did that go, uh, Marvin? Well, Bruce, it, it's it's a really funny story. I was um, a young scholar on Russian history at Harvard, and I was very close to getting my Ph.D. I had finished everything else. And one day I was in the library on a Monday morning, the day after I had written an article, a magazine piece for the New York Times about Soviet youth. What were young people under communism thinking? I got this call, and the librarian came over, and she said, Marvin, there's a guy on the phone who says he's Edward R. Murrow, and he'd like to talk to you. I said, look, Murrow is not calling me. That's ridiculous. Probably some kind of crank. Just hang up on him. I went back to doing my work, and later that afternoon, she came back again and said, Marvin, I don't think he's a crank. He keeps saying he's Edward R. Murrow. And I said, well, let me just pick up the phone and get rid of this guy. The minute, Bruce, that I heard his voice, that very distinctive voice, I knew immediately that I'd been a complete jackass (laughs) for doing what I'd done. And so I said, you know, I excused, I apologized time and time again. And he said, no, 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 forget that. I want you to come in and talk to me tomorrow about Russia. Um, 
you know, you study it, you've been there, you've lived there, you speak the language, talk to me about that place. I went in the following day, the meeting was supposed to last a half hour, it lasted three hours, Murrow was totally absorbed in the country that was at that time, Bruce, our principal adversary in the Cold War. What the Russians did meant a great deal to the national security of the United States. So Murrow wanted somebody in Moscow who knew about the country, and so he sort of picked me, and I think it was that article on Soviet youth that got it all started. What words come to mind when describing Edward R. Murrow? Integrity, decency, humanity, um, a nice guy, a very nice guy. You did have a very, uh, I think he, he really felt you in an affectionate sort of a sense. Um, we'll get to some of the other things later with that relationship, but I get the idea that he was very, very fond of you. Well, um, I it started with, with Murrow's interest in the world. I mean, he covered World War II. He was the great voice of CBS, but above and beyond that, he really started the whole industry of radio news, which led to television news, etc., so you have to look back to Murrow as the founder of it all. I was a listener to his radio program, 745 every night, but millions of people were. And I didn't know the man. I just knew of him. And he represented the heart and soul of what was to become a huge, vital industry in this country. And that is the media. I mean, heavens, we know it is right now in the middle of a political war. Right. And at that time, it had a more limited objective, which was simply to cover the world. Right. There were so many men at CBS News who, I mean, as a kid, I, you know, I'll tell you an inside story. I used to listen underneath the, the, the door to my bedroom um, to conversations that my parents had with other friends about things like politics and national affairs as a kid. I, I, I was a news geek even when I was in grade school, and I listened to, to, to men at CBS News. One of, the, one of the, the newsmen I admired the most was Eric Severide. Tell oh, yeah. me something about Eric, Eric Severide that I, I wouldn't know. Well, you probably already know about this man's writing skills, his, his reporting of World War II, his reporting of China. He was a great journalist, a great writer, and an extraordinary philosopher. And I use that word advisedly because he took ordinary news of the day and put it into a large context so that people listening or watching him would understand not only what he thought, but why he thought that. Mm -hmm. What was so important about this issue? Why should the American people care about it? And he tried to put it in language that they would understand, and he did it with an elegance that was remarkable. He was also a guy who would walk into the newsroom very quietly, and it, it's as if he wanted people not to know he was there. And he would come into my office, not often, but say once every couple of weeks. And he would sit there when he wanted 
to know something about Russia, he would sit there, but he wouldn't say anything. He would just look at me, and he obliged me to say to him, Eric, what is it that you would like to know? I will try very hard to help. And then he would open up. But he was very quiet, very solemn, and incredibly nice. What a great story. Uh, Eb's going to ask you a question in just a second. Before I turn it over to him, what was the pecking order at CBS after Murrow? And, and of course, what about the rivalries amongst all of you men who were the, the face and the voices of the news at CBS? Well, you know, later on, the rivalries, I guess, the most intense were between Dan Rather and Roger Mudd. Uh, each one being the one who thought he ought to replace Cronkite. But Cronkite was the one who, in effect, replaced Murrow. And Murrow left to join the U.S. government and work under the Kennedy administration. He was the head of USIA until he died in 1965. Once Murrow left, it was clear that Cronkite was going to be number one. And after Cronkite left... It was this battle between Rather and Mudd and Rather won. And then in 1981, uh, Mudd and I left CBS and went to NBC. So while uh, Merle referred to you as the professor, tell us yes. about the conversation you had with your brother Bernie about the future when you got out of school and the path that ultimately led you to CBS News and your assignment in Moscow. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Bernie had, my brother Bernie had a huge impact and influence on my life and on my career. And when I was finishing college, he once said, I hope that you are not going to finish with a degree specializing in English literature, which was his way of joking that you're going to get something which is very nice, but it's going to be very hard to earn a living. And he pressed me to try to get involved with something that had an immediate impact, that if I wanted to go into teaching, it would be a subject that people would care about. If I wanted to go into journalism, definitely people would care about it. And he recommended Russia, because he knew I was interested in foreign affairs, interested, therefore, in Russia in the middle of the Cold War. You had to be. And I thought about that, and... When I had an opportunity, I went into first, um, the whole thought was Russia and trying to learn about it, learn the language, learn history, the economics, culture, literature, all of that, and be a teacher. And that was pretty much in my mind until I got a job at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in 1956. I lived in Russia um, worked very closely with a great American ambassador, Charles Boland. And then when I left, I knew one thing. I did not want to be a diplomat. I wanted to be a teacher, went back to Harvard. Then there was the call from Murrow. And when he put his arm around my shoulder and said, after our three-hour talk, how would you like to join CBS News? It took me about a minute. No, it took me about a second did you take a, a breath? <laughs> exactly. It took me a second and a half to say, yes, I would love to. I'd be honored to. And Murrow always had in mind that he wanted me to be the Moscow correspondent. I thought 
that was on his mind, but he never expressed it to me. Hmm. And within CBS at that time, most of the management did not want to hire me because they wanted somebody with ink-stained hands, somebody who was an established journalist. I was not. I was a teacher. And But they knew that Murrow wanted me for that job in Moscow. And so they, in effect, if I were not a swimmer, threw me into the pool and said, swim. So when you and show... I was able, I was able to do it and do it apparently well enough so that even the guys who didn't want me at the beginning wanted me at the end to be the Moscow correspondent. So you showed up at the embassy in 1956. Were you fluent in Russian then, or did you think you were fluent in Russian then? <laughs> I thought I was, but I was pretty good at it. And um, once I was there, uh, by the end of 13 months, I was really fluent. I spoke Russian very well, still do, but not as well as I did then. Mm. And it was it was extremely important to, for me anyway, as a student of Russia, to look at the Russian people, to talk to them, and to talk also to people like Nikita Khrushchev. I was very, very fortunate to have that angle. I want you to talk to us about the scoop you got with Nikita Khrushchev and the pastry when the premier... Uh, met his friend oh, Peter yeah. the Great outside the gates of the Russian embassy in Paris. Yeah, well, it's all yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it was May 1960. Uh, there was to be a major summit in Paris. The subject was the division of Berlin, and this was my first foreign assignment. And on my first day, I persuaded the foreign editor of CBS knowing that Khrushchev always liked to go out for a morning walk, to give me a crew, television crew, to be in front of the Russian embassy. I was there at 6 a.m. At exactly 7, the large iron doors of the embassy open up. Khrushchev walks out with two bodyguards. I saw him, and I raced toward him with my crew. The bodyguards, not knowing me at all, why should they, um... Uh, reached into their pockets, obviously, for weapons. And Khrushchev looked at me, recognized me, and said, no, 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 he's all right, he's all right, he's Peter the Great. A quick insert here. Peter the Great was the nickname that Khrushchev gave me in 1956. Big party at the U.S. Embassy. And he asked me in an odd conversation about basketball how tall I was. I didn't want to say 6'3", because he wouldn't know it in his terminology. They dealt with meters then. I said, well, I'm three centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. To this day, <laughs> I can't tell you, Bruce, why I told that story. Anyway, that was the true line. He, he listened and burst into laughter. Everyone else laughed. And from then on, when I returned to Moscow as the CBS correspondent, and Khrushchev would see me, or I would see him, and I'd approach him. It was always Peter the Great. So, in Paris, we started walking along with him. The crew was shooting the two of us. I was asking him pleasant questions. I wasn't rough at the very beginning. We passed a magnificent boulangerie, a bakery shop in Paris, and this aroma that only gods can create, uh, produced the odor, the aroma of croissant. 
beautiful croissant. And Khrushchev stopped and took a sniff, and a big smile came over his face. I said, Mr. Chairman, have you ever tasted a croissant? He said, no. I raced into the bakery, got a bunch of croissants, gave him one. He bit into it, and his face lit up in Slavic joy. And I knew I had the beginning of a great interview then. And the minute he finished his croissant, I began to ask him about Berlin, about the U-2. We had had a spy plane shot down over Sverdlovsk on May 1st, and that spoiled the atmosphere of the summit in Paris. But I asked him about the U-2, asked him about Berlin, asked him about disarmament, had a really good interview, and it was exclusive. So when Khrushchev went back into his embassy, I raced to CBS. CBS that night had a big, big exclusive. I had my first uh, scoop, and it was on my first day as a foreign correspondent, which is a heck of a good way to begin. Uh, Bob Wells has a question for you, Marvin. Please. Bob, what is it? Well, here in Tucson, the U.S. Air Force had a squadron of U-2s, as you probably know, at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. And the U-2 mm-hmm. crisis is a critically important part of the Cold War U.S.-Soviet relationship. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the U-2 crisis as you were thinking about uh, Nikita Khrushchev and particularly the failed Paris conference? Sure. Um, well, the plane was one of the number that had been flying over the Soviet Union for normal intelligence work. I mean, it was trying to shoot photographs or whatever it is that uh, we thought was very significant. And at that time, it was the buildup of long-range Soviet missiles. Um, This particular plane um, flew out of Turkey. It flew over the Soviet Union, and when it was over Sverdlovsk, it was shot down. Now, remarkably, the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, was able to survive the crash of the plane. He was not there when it crashed. He was in a parachute coming down separately. Uh, But he was, of course, picked up. He was on an espionage flight, and that meant, in the language of the Cold War, that he could be picked up and killed as a spy. Now, Khrushchev at that time wanted very much to get on with the United States, but on his terms. What he wanted was to end the division of Berlin, but end it so that the communists would be in control of the western part of the city as well. And of course, Eisenhower and the western leaders would not hear of that. And so there was built into the effort to resolve it, an almost irreconcilable conflict between the two sides. When the U-2 went down, it gave Khrushchev a crutch. It gave him an excuse to break up the Paris summit so that it never literally took place. And he used it as an opportunity to denounce the United States. And the U-2 incident was one of the paramount incidents, as you put it correctly, of the Cold War. And at that time, Khrushchev uh, used it as if there was no tomorrow. He used it in every opportunity that he had. 
He had the Soviet press write about it constantly. Soviet television talked about it constantly. So that the Russian people, when I was walking around the streets then and talking to them, at that time, you, look, you try to describe this thing in a book, but unless you've read it, I don't mean read unless you've lived it, it's hard really to explain how the Russian people went from really admiring President Eisenhower. In fact, they built a golf course for him to play on in Siberia on a visit to the Soviet Union in June of 1960, but it never took place wow. because of the U-2. So Ike never went there. The U-2 was the focused um, irritant in the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. And that and that uh, U-2 downing, um, you, you wrote, um, um, actually you talked to Gil Klein uh, from the National Press Club about this. Um, you talked about this from a different angle. I didn't know that uh, in, in your post in Moscow, you weren't that concerned about the United States and Russia going to war over the missiles in Cuba. Y you believe... I was not. Yeah. And that was reason, an amazing story. Well, I was not for, for a very simple reason. The Russian people are not were not told at that time, still aren't really, but at that time under communist rule, the Russian people were not told the truth about very much at all. And yet they had a remarkable way of knowing what was going on. Because they used to read the newspaper Pravda, which the Russian word for truth, but they never thought it was the truth, and they wrapped fish in it, and they would denounce Pravda for not having the truth. And if you went to the central marketplace in Moscow, which I used to go to every Saturday morning, and again, because I spoke Russian, I went over and began, I would, my cover, as it were, was to buy vegetables and meat, or fish, whatever I could. But in the course of that, those purchases, I would be able to talk to them about what they were concerned about. And I went and talked to them about the U-2. I talked to them about Cuba. They were concerned about Berlin, because that was Germany. That took them back in their history to the Prussian sure. invasions. That was and personal. Napoleon's invasion. Sorry? That was personal to the Russians. That was personal to them. The idea, Cuba simply was an island very far away. They couldn't care about it very mm. much. What they cared about was Germany, and they were using the Cuban missiles as a vehicle for forcing Kennedy, in their view, for forcing Kennedy to abandon the western part of Berlin. And he didn't. And after the Vienna summit in June of 1961, he came out and he told a reporter for the New York Times, we're going to have one long winter. He was prepared for a Cold War. The Russians almost immediately built the Berlin Wall. And we were in the most frigid part of the Cold War, the most dangerous. So your command of the Russian language gave you a huge advantage being able to speak right to the people without having a translator in the middle uh, obfuscating what they were telling you. Well, absolutely. And I tell all of my students today that if you want to go into journalism, if you want to be a foreign correspondent, learn foreign languages.
people in this country believe that all people around the world know English. Well, an awful lot of them do. But most of the people respect their own language, their own culture. And if you can sort of honor them to the extent of learning their language, they're much more apt to talk to you. That's just logical. And they, in fact, um, the knowledge of Russian opened any number of doors uh, for me and allowed me to get under the, to get behind the Iron Curtain, as it were, and, and try to write about it and talk about it in ways that would be helpful to the American people. You were on Nixon's enemies list. Yes. How did you get on the list, and what was your reaction as a citizen, not just as a journalist? Yeah. Well, that was in early the early 1970s. Um, in 1973, um, three years after I was on the list, I found out about it. I didn't know anything about it. The enemies list was a private list that Nixon had at the White House of those people he considered uh, enemies. It's too strong a word, although that's the word he used. He considered critics. He did not like or appreciate my coverage of the Vietnam War. At the very beginning of the war, I was very much in favor of it. But after 1968, I lost all of my enthusiasm and began to question it in a very significant way. And my broadcasts apparently reflected uh, that change. Nixon was a big CBS watcher, and so he got angry at me. But I didn't know any of this. I continued to do my job, and in 73, I learned from a senator um, that I was on an enemies list. I had no idea even what that was. Um, but I can tell you right now that as far as CBS was concerned, it did absolutely nothing one way or the other um, to my career. I was not in any way embarrassed. In fact, my CBS boss at the time, a guy named Bill Small, knew that I was on an enemies list, but never told me. And when I asked him about that later, how could you not tell me? He said that if he were to tell me, it might have influenced my reporting, and he didn't want to do that. As an American citizen, you asked, as a citizen, not a reporter, I was embarrassed. <clears throat> I'd spent so many years in a communist country where everything was controlled by the state, where freedom was an impossible thing even for them to dream about. And forgive me, but I am a very pro-American patriot. I believe this is a terrific country. And I did, I, I was embarrassed that my president would have an enemies list when we ought to be grateful, when we listen to sensible criticism of our policy, because maybe we don't have it right. And God knows we have not had it right any number of times. Mm -hmm. And if you have sensible criticism based on fact, fact that is acceptable as fact, as the truth, then 
it seemed to me that an American president would want that rather than anything fanciful. So anyway, that's it. Marvin, I, I, unfortunately, we're, I, I've already kept you for about 15 minutes longer than I told your publicist we'd keep you. And I, and I, I, I apologize to you for that, but this is just we can no, talk for hours. I've enjoyed it immensely. Yes, we, we really can, enjoyed it. I have tons of questions I could ask you. But, 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 but we're going we're gonna to need to go to a break here in just a second. I want to ask you one last question. Okay. Uh, I, I watched you for 30 years on CBS and NBC, and I... Honestly, I appreciated your knowledge on the topics and often serious and scholarly perspective. I never saw you smile too much, but I know that you <laughs> smile. Um, but, it, but, you know, Marvin, it never occurred to me once uh, that you were editorializing on the information that you were delivering. Um, well, I hope that I was not editorializing. What I was trying to say before, but perhaps not well, was that Underneath all of us is a point of view. Sure. As a reporter, it's not your point of view that you should be putting out. You should be putting out fact. But how do you select the fact? And if you select a set of facts that are, when put together, highly supportive of a government policy, that's one thing. You can also select a set of facts that would suggest that the government's policy was faulty. I believe that to be the case to this day. And therefore, you are left with the judgment of the reporter as to whether he or she is trying to be fair, to be accurate, to be putting out information that is of value uh, to the American people. You're not a propagandist. You don't play games with the truth. You try to be as close to the truth as you possibly can. Hmm. Marvin Kalb, thank you very much, sir. Yes, Congratulations thank you. Thank on the you. book, Assignment Russia, published by Brookings and available anywhere. This is how many, or tell us just real quickly, how many books have you authored? 17. 17. Is there an 18th book in the process? Uh, that's up to God. Uh, I'm almost at my 91st birthday. Yeah, I know. And if I am treated nicely by the Almighty, I certainly have another book in mind. Yeah, let's, hope, let's hope they are. Marvin Kalb, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Producer, let's take our late first break when we return. Republican Party leader from Oregon and leader in the RNC, Solomon, you will join us. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. 
and bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. <laughs> Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's IMUSWilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Marvin Kalb. Wow, what an interview. Our guest for the remainder of today's show. Solomon, you have you have a, a big uh, big shoes to fill here, buddy. Uh, uh, I know. For the rest I of our special... I Yeah. <laughs> Solomon, don't let him do that to you. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) We're talking about foreign relations with Republican Party leader uh, and a longtime national committeeman from Oregon, Solomon. You welcome back, Solomon. Thank you, Bruce. Yesterday, the Communist Chinese Party was bragging about a big rocket they had launched and managed to try and rub salt into the wounds of tens of thousands of Indians dying each week due to the virus, which which emanated from China itself. What what happened? It was really, really bad. Official Twitter account, the Central Political and Legal Affairs Commission of the Communist Party of China actually tweeted two pictures. One is a uh, rocket long march five uh, uh, B and launched uh, to the space, basically called China Fire. The second picture is Indians burn uh, coven dead bodies and. Supposedly, is a contrast. Uh, we successfully launched a rocket to Chinese uh, space station, and Indians are suffering. By the way, people got really upset because who caused the suffering in the first place? CCP virus. They gave the virus to India. Uh, I consider it as a bioattack. And meanwhile, and they're laughing at them. Okay, right. burning bodies. Guess what? Indians believe common is a bitch. A good, beautiful bitch, but still is a bitch. Now, the rocket did not reach the orbit, and it's tumbling, crashing down tomorrow. So that was a huge news on Twitter, on line, and everybody are watching. And I'm watching this rocket coming down, too. Why is the PRC looking for potentially more hostilities with their neighbor, India? Uh, because they think they use so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. And they think they can make themselves uh, strong, tough. But at the same time, from my perspective, actually, they make themselves look weak and also allow uh, their enemies to work together and to unite and to take them down. 
Looking at uh, Chairman Xi and his intent with uh, his neighbors, not just India, but also could you talk about what's happening in Hong Kong? Yeah, and also his, his approach uh, inside Hong Kong. What is he concerned about? Actually, I think he is very much concerned about a color revolution. And uh, uh, Mao Chairman Mao that used to say "xin xin zi huo ke yuan." It means uh, a little spark could cause a huge fire. And uh, if uh, uh, this happened, what they what they realize is uh, the peaceful protesters in Hong Kong, the way they organized, the way they define uh, Hong Kong government and CCP, uh, what you see is this kind of stuff could cause same kind of fire in uh, mainland. And uh, now they want to clap down and uh, using so-called Hong Kong uh, national security law. And as a matter of fact, to a point, uh, people are not allowed to leave anymore. And all my friends, uh, the leaders of pro-democracy movements, and got arrested and waiting for trial. And Jamie Lai already been sentenced twice. So that was and a show trial. That was a show trial. And when, when you see this kind of stuff uh, happening, and what I see is a regime insecurity again. Something is happening uh, in mainland China, and population is aging, and uh, might run into food shortage, and also uh, bubbles, many, many bubbles, including uh, real estate bubbles, could uh, b- burst. And the, the issue on the real estate bubble would affect all Chinese. Uh, majority Chinese do not put their savings, their money in their savings account. The uh, reason is very simple. Uh, very little interest, a low interest rate, very little money you can make. So what they do, they speculate, put it in stock market, which is crashing, and put it in uh, real estate property market. The problem with real estate property market is that uh, you have to have a down payment, and you don't have enough money to put down uh, to do a down payment uh, for your second property. So you borrow from your relatives, from your parents, and their savings, and now you take the saving and to go to a property market to speculate. That means you know you and I might buy a property and rent it out. And they don't. They just buy it, hoping the, the property value keep going up. But in reality, is property uh, price is coming down in Shenzhen. And uh, what they do is, please take over my mortgage payments. I give you uh, the property for free. I can't even sell it. But I can't hang on to it. And because Colvin sells... And if you take a look, Chinese shopping malls, all the business people close their business and no consumption. Okay. When that happens, nobody has money. And so property, uh, property market might see a, uh, market burst. And with that in mind, when people do not have the money 
no job, and losing savings. Not only their savings, losing their parents' and relatives' savings. What do they do? They're going to be on the streets. And they don't want Hong Kong uh, protesters uh, lead the way as a model for uh, mainland Chinese. That's how I see it. Some countries are talking about suing China for reparations due to the virus? Oh, I love it. And uh, I think, you know, first of all, I believe uh, Xi Jinping is responsible uh, for the bioattack. I don't care what happened. I was leaked uh, intentionally or unintentionally. And there is the latest article on this subject. And they were talking about turn uh, SARS virus into a Wuhan virus uh, as a bioweapon, okay? Uh, five, six years ago, they start military scientists talking about this kind of stuff. For World War Three. okay, who, who is the enemy? USA, right? And, but the problem is, got it leaked. Intentionally, unintentionally, we don't know. Once it was leaked, Xi Jinping did two things. One, shut down domestic travel, period. And allowed infected Chinese to travel abroad, to infect us and to kill us. The casualty rate right now is 3.2 million dead worldwide. So one of the things I do on Twitter is I told Indians they should tell uh, uh, take China to international court of justice sue for damage. And right now there are two states also suing China, not uh, just China self suing the entity responsible for the virus. And uh, one is Missouri, and the other one is Mississippi in federal court. So I think there is a movement pretty soon uh, will catch up because to third world countries, and especially those third world countries owe a lot of debt to China. And they would see this as free money and sue for damage. And I hope this will catch up. Speaking about catching up, if you recall two years ago that an island nation of Kiribati recognized Beijing over Taiwan yes. diplomatically. Yes. Just this week, we had a new base being discussed during the discussions between the Kiribati leader and, and China. What do you think is going on here? I think they're going to build a Air Force base. And that should be a concern for us because this nation, this base, is very close between Hawaii and Guam. And we have to... It's 3,000 miles we, away from Hawaii. That's correct. We have to do whatever we can to shut this base down because that technically allow China to position their fighters uh, outside first chain defense. You know, first thing basically from uh, Taiwan all the way to uh, Japan and uh, to uh, the Philippines. And uh, now they will be able to station 
the fighters uh, outside uh, first chain defense. So that is a major threat as far as I'm concerned. Looking at it uh, from a uh, military perspective and recalling what China intends to do, not just in the South China Sea, but what they're doing on the uh, uh, inside the South China Sea with the new strategic ballistic missile submarine, the Jin class. Uh, if you look at where Karabash is and where strategic missile submarine patrols could be, this could be a logistic support uh, facility to support those out-of-area operations uh, from Hanan Island of this brand, brand new Jin class. So there, there's a str strategic concern as well, uh, a very important posture concern with regard to Karabash. Uh, have you heard anything about uh, their military intent uh, from Kiribati? Uh, actually, not yet. I only heard that they are going to extend the runway. That's why I talk about fighter jets. But you're absolutely right. What we'll stopped CCP to build a deeper pool uh, for their submarine uh, to operate out of that place? And another thing is uh, the reason we box them in, uh, it's a shallow water and within the first chain of defense and uh, uh, first island chain defense. And if they are allowed to station their submarine uh, between Guam and and uh, Hawaii, and we got a problem. So diplomatically, I think we can shut them down uh, because that island nation allows CCP to build runway. Now, they have not talked about deep uh, water port, and, uh, but that will be a, a hostile uh, action against our national security. So I'm going to ask this question uh, of Bob and of you, uh, Solomon. Uh, shipbuilding, maritime infrastructure, which we do not have really well set up at this time in America is not in the $2 trillion Biden infrastructure bill. Um, Seth Cropsey, who we uh, will have as a future guest here again very soon, says the Pentagon hasn't spelled out how the USA would win a maritime war with China. Now, Bob is a former surface ship guy, uh, has been around for a while. You know that he worked with our friend Stephen Yates in, in the White House a while right. back. Uh, I'll ask this question first of, of uh, Robert. Um, do you agree that we're off on, on, a, on a bad sort of a direction here, not building more maritime uh, protection, not building up our maritime infrastructure, especially in view of the enormous amount of infrastructure and, and new production that's gone uh, on through the CCP the last, really, decade? I do, and I think Seth Crosby's uh, article turned the lights on in the room, so to speak. And there's a couple. Well, he's been writing about this for years. Nobody's he, been he, listening, though. He, he has been, and and uh, I I'm of the era that had uh, John Lehman looking at the 600 ship Navy. But we do need to have capable uh, warships that have strike capability, and uh, we've got certain capabilities, but we need more. Uh, we need not just carrier battle groups, but surface uh, hunter killer. Uh, strike groups that can support deterrence against the Chinese. It's not just the U.S. Navy alone, though. It's going to be a joint right. uh, multi-domain capability that's uh, 
and the Indo-Pacific is certainly an area of focus. But and the Australians aren't getting along with the Chinese any more than the Chinese are getting are not getting along with the Indians right now. A critically important point, uh, very much, uh, Bruce. The fact is, the Australians uh, have really. Uh, Push back with regard to China. It's very uh, good for us to they, see. They've to been see laying that the wood well. to them. That's right. For the last several months, <laughs> yeah, pretty well, well. At least the Australians are. It's certainly not the Africans. <laughs> no, the they're Aust- embracing them with open arms. The, the well, the Australians and uh, the Australian military in particular. But uh, that's that's good to know with regard to the United States and our traditional relationship with our Australian friends. But to your point about. Uh, uh, Seth Cropsey's though the we need a, a better maritime posture, and that has to come forward uh, in the next few years to support deterrence against China, and to be really competitive with China as they continue to uh, break out. So, so Solomon, Joe Biden has this huge infrastructure bill, but nothing's in it for for maritime development. It, if if you were in Congress, is this something that you would advocate that we need that kind rather than child care and 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 air conditioning systems in in schools and so on? That's all nice stuff, but this is our national security that's at risk, isn't it? Absolutely, and I agree with, with both of you guys. And on top of that, and I would advocate uh, more ship building and. Uh, at the same time, I think we have to expose why Biden is not doing it. Go right back to his son. Uh, HBR received $1.5 billion. I'm talking about billion, okay? And uh, from Bank of China. Guess who was the middleman? China top diplomat, Yang Shiqi, is the middleman. Okay, that's the one lecture us in Anchorage, Alaska. Right. It was the middleman put that deal together for Biden. He's the guy that gave the slap down to Blinken just a few weeks ago. Right, okay. So when you see this kind of stuff, and we have to tell American people, Beijing Biden, that's what I call Biden, Joe Biden, Beijing Biden. (laughs) Solomon's not political at all. No, I'm not. But uh, when you're on Twitter and you put a hashtag um, before Beijing Biden, okay? And Beijing Biden is paying off his son, Hunter Biden's dad again. That's right. That's you know, See, the thing is, uh, the days you can be nice and you can be bipartisan, long gone. Okay, we got we got about two minutes left, Solomon. I want okay. to get I want to get to uh, Communist Party corruption, hiding assets in the United States, sending their kids to schools here, buying real estate properties here with these very influential Chinese. Talk about that uh, and why you think that actually there is maybe less of a chance of war with the United States because these people have a lot to lose. That's correct, especially in nuclear threat perspective. Uh, during Reagan years, we we got the only deterrence is mutual uh, assured destruction. They push button, we push button, we're all gone, right? Right. But today, uh, many, many uh, princelings, princelings, CCP princelings, and uh, also uh, elites, uh, CCP elites, and they stole from Chinese people. They hid money and fast car 
uh, houses, uh, concubines. Legit, yeah, legit, yeah. legit, and concubines, wives yeah. in U.S. Okay, including Mr. Young, we just discussed about him. Uh, discussed, uh, talked about him, and he hired, he bought three properties in U.S. and for his wife and and, and daughter, and uh, so on one hand they lecture us. On the other hand, they want our uh, life lifestyle. Okay, so knowing this, now Chinese people don't know that yet. But if Chinese people know this, and uh, uh, so-called uh, they can push the button, um, make nuclear threat against us, should be real. They, their people will realize uh, this kind of threat has been neutralized due to CCP corruption and their assets and their uh, relatives uh, in U.S. Well, Solomon, so we're going we're, we're to have to leave it right there. Thank you very much. Insiders, uh, I hope you enjoyed today's special interviews with veteran journalist Marvin Kalb and hearing Republican leader Solomon Yu on U.S. relations with the People's Republic of China. We have another great show for you next week. Uh, it's going to be a memorable show. Uh, and for Inside Track, until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash, Ed Wilkinson, and Bob Wells, wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911.